We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello? We're on to Cincinnati. You play to win the game. It was all that Dan Marino's fault. Everyone knows that. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Rockpile Report, AFC East Roundup, hosted by Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear, a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Bill, what did you see on uh, Max uh, interceptions? Where are we? Um, yeah, well, probably the same thing you saw. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the AFCE's Roundup Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And that was one of the NFL's greatest curmudgeons ever. Bill Belichick from his post-game press conference over at Patriots.com. I'm not sure we've ever used Bill Belichick in because he says nothing. It's yeah. It's it's the but, but it's the way he said it. It's the way he says nothing that's like the most entertaining part of. Oh, it's yeah. Chef's kiss. Yeah. yeah what did you see in those interceptions? <laughs> Same thing you saw. <laughs> I I can't wait to jump into this week's this week's show because when you take a look at what went on in week three, our standings recap: the Buffalo Bills sit atop the division now at two and one. The Dolphins one and two. The Patriots one and two. And then the Jets bringing up the rear at zero and three. The Buffalo Bills remain on top and actually gain some distance in the division race in their win over Washington. We're the only team to post a winning streak in the division so far. And we're the only fan base to wake up Monday morning in a good mood. Above 500. The Dolphins, last week we referred to them on this podcast as the owners of the most hollow 1-1 one one record in the conference. Now they're the owners of what, be, what might be the most aggravating 1-2 record. Falling to the Raiders in overtime after a boatload of officiating mistakes. And some nonsense that I don't know how to explain. I mean, Chris, Jacoby Brissett... A, a completed pass for a safety. Yeah, I wa- like 
I watched. I didn't. I don't think I watched. The game was on at work, but I don't think I was there to see it live. I saw a replay, and it was like, what? I had what someone make me a gif of it. Fuck, are you doing? I had someone make me a gif of it just so when I'm sad, I can watch it. Like when I'm bummed out at work or something's aggravating me, I can go back and watch that play and go, you know what? Maybe maybe things aren't so bad. Just how everybody that listens to this likes looking at gifts of you. Yeah, right? The Patriots, after looking impressive against the Jets, get humbled on their way to a 1-2 and two record, falling to the Saints, who I think might be the NFL's most confusing team right now. You blow out the Packers, then you stink against the, the Panthers, and then you blow out the Patriots. Who are you? I don't know. I've been... Uh... I've been off on them. I'm in a pick 'em league, and like week one, I picked the Packers, and then I picked week two, I did the Panthers, and then I was like, oh, this is a game's in New England. Jameis is going to just throw the ball all over the field, interceptions galore, and that was not it. Maybe Sean Payton is the answer for Jameis Winston and his. Uh, Maybe. How erratic he can be with the ball. Maybe. And so then there's the Jets. I mean, if we're running down the division standings, there's no good way to say this, but any Jets fan who saw 2021 as anything short of another rebuilding year is probably right now living some sort of nightmarish existence that I wouldn't wish on a lot of people as their team was shut out on route to yet another 0-3 start to their season, their sixth time starting a season by losing at least two of their first three games since 2010. And here to talk to us all about it is one of the bravest podcasters I know, Scott Mason from Play Like a Jet. How are you, sir? It's funny, Drew, because before the season started, I thought I said the Jets would win about five games, and a bunch of people came at me saying that I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a wet blanket, and that I need to wise up to what this team could be, and this <laughs> and that. They're on the ranks. And now I feel like a cockeyed optimist having said five games. I don't think there's any chance this team wins five games. I mean, here's I'm looking at this game. I've got some stats. I've got some storylines. Here's the first one that I want to ask you about because when you lose twenty six to nothing to the Denver Broncos, there are there are the silver linings. I mean, you've been pretty good at finding them thus far this season, but this one it's really hard to swallow. Jets fans who hated Adam Gase and who celebrated his firing, which I think was a pretty universal thing. And then between the drafting of a new quarterback and the acquisition of talent upgrades in the offensive line, guys like uh, Morgan Moses and Elijah Vera Tucker, and uh, watching Joe Douglas upgrade essentially every single skill position besides tight end, you all probably would have been willing to bet at least one whole paycheck on this idea that there was no way that the Jets' offense could get worse without Adam Gase. Those people who thought that are probably getting ready to carve Brooksy was here into a crossbeam in their apartments (laughs) when they take a look and see that the Jets are quickly in the running for the title of worst offense in the NFL. They're 32nd in points per game. They are the only team not currently in double digits points per game. Uh, I think it's 6.7 is their current margin. 29th in rushing yards, 28th in yards per pass attempt. Their quarterback has the worst QBR in the NFL at 22.1, and he's tied for the league lead in interceptions, averaging two and a half a game. Like, what happened here? And how is the fan base 
like coping with this just free fall from what they thought were bad offensive football teams to this? Well, let me first correct you. Zach Wilson is not the last quarterback in the NFL in QBR. Justin Fields is. Wilson That's is fair. second to last. That's so let's fair. correct the record on that. Uh, the, the three lowest QBRs, by the way, are Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, and Justin Fields in that order. So if you pick the rookie quarterback, you're not looking great over the first three games. But I will say this. A couple of things. The first one is that Zach Wilson actually wasn't that bad on Sunday. This is one of those the box scores looked a lot worse than the reality. And a big part of the reason is that last week Zach Wilson was straight up terrible against the Patriots. This week, his surrounding cast let him down a lot. Corey Davis, for example, dropped two passes, one of which was a beautiful play by Wilson where he escaped what would have been a sack on a long third down, rolled out to his left, threw a bullet downfield, and it bounced off of Corey Davis's chest. So that was one. Michael Carter dropped an easy first down. Ty Johnson dropped an easy first down. Braxton Berrios let a ball go through his hands for an interception. So I'm not saying that Zach Wilson was amazing, but he was actually fine on Sunday. He wasn't that bad. The numbers look a lot worse than they were. The problem is, if you guys remember, I said last week that Zach Wilson was terrible. The rest of the team was actually pretty decent, but because of how bad Wilson was, that didn't matter. Well, this week, Wilson was much better and the rest of the offense was, was terrible. I already mentioned Corey Davis dropping passes. And then Ty Johnson not only couldn't catch, but he was horrendous in pass protection. When they used him the chip, they might as well not have because he just didn't even appear to be trying. And then you look at the offensive line that had a very rough day, and then you get into what happened during the week where Nick Mangle, the people's champ, stepped up for Jets fans. I don't know if you guys saw this, but did you guys see what happened with Connor McGovern? No. And Greg Van Roten? No. I, right. I saw that there was a DM that uh, made its way onto Twitter. Right. Right. Well, first what happened was during the press conference after the game, Van Roten more or less threw Zach Wilson under the bus, which is hilarious because Van Roten was terrible. And then McGovern, you, you saw the DM, basically some guy DM'd them and said, what was happening? He tweeted something out and said what was happening here, and then McGovern DM'd the guy and basically was whining and crying about this is why uh, players don't deal with fans because they don't understand ball and this and that. And that my responsibility wasn't this, and I did this, and blah, blah, blah. And somebody tagged Nick Mangold and was like, Nick Mangold never would have made these excuses. And Mangold responded by saying, looks like he's throwing his guard straight under the bus. Which yeah. is, by the way, what he was doing. He was throwing Elijah Barrett Tucker under the bus, and I was talking to somebody. They were like, oh, he could have had a nicer way of saying what he said. I go, or, here's a radical thought, don't randomly DM some guy on Twitter complaining that he criticized you. How about just ignore it and go about your day instead of throwing your rookie teammate under the bus like that. So everything's kind of coming apart at the seams. The defense wasn't as bad as the 26 to nothing score. They just got worn out. And ultimately, they held the Broncos to field goals four separate times when they easily could have been touchdowns. 
So one more time, the defense was at least respectable, but yeah, the de- the offense is terrible. I don't know if you guys saw. Somebody had put up the the clip of there was one play where all three receivers, literally all three of them ran the same route on the same play, all of them. No, and I did Mike see that, hurt. and it was one of oh. it, it was one of the more comical tweets. Like people had a lot of great captions for it. You know me. Petty son of a bitch. Oh yeah, I soak. I soaked. Like if I, I got some good bread and I sopped that all up. <laughs> Just yeah. Uh, oh, it's terrible. But you look at it, and and the only conclusion that you can draw through three games, and again, there's 14 games to go. So he's a rookie coordinator and all that. But man, Mike Lafleur just looks in over his head. Well, and, and this Scott is Scott and Leger Duzabal and Willie Colon were saying in the post game, and I said it as well. I think the Jets have to seriously start considering hiring a consultant, and the name that I I threw out there was Mike Shanahan, because currently, as far as I'm aware, he isn't employed by anybody, and who knows the Shanahan offense better than Mike Shanahan, but they need to hire somebody to help this guy, because if this keeps up, like you said, the Jets are already the worst offense in the league, which is hilarious but sad, obviously. If this keeps up, I, I had people. I was saying. I, I joked. Everybody knows knows me. That knows uh, what I, you know. What I think about all this knows that I have an affinity for Todd Monken, who I think they should have hired three years ago instead of Adam Gase. But I said, look, he'll get some head coaching opportunities in the off season. But if I was the Jets, if they don't turn this around soon, I would call Monken at the end of the season to be like, look, we'll make you the highest paid offensive coordinator in the league. Come save Zach Wilson. And somebody goes, oh, well, that'll never happen because LaFleur and Salah are so close. Salah was like best man at his wedding, whatever it was. I go, look, it doesn't matter because if this keeps up like this, if they're the 32nd-ranked offense and Wilson is getting no help and, and they're just wasting him away, you guys know how this goes. Look at what happened with Dable and uh, um, Dennison and all that you got to make a change if it comes to that. I don't care if this guy's your best friend, your actual literal bro- blood brother. you got to make a change, and, and you can't wait on it. And, look, we get, we've seen this many times. People say, oh, you can't tell the coaches who to hire. Sure, but you can step in and force them to get rid of a problem. How many times do we see that where you hear such and such coordinator was forced out because he was not getting the job done, and even if the head coach didn't want him out, that was the concession that that coach had to make. So, no, yeah, I mean, look, 14 more games to go, but this is not looking great. No, and so this is something that I've been waiting to pick your brain about literally since the games ended on Sunday. And, and before we do that, Chris, I just do, I want to say, for Bills fans who are chortling over this, there were some, there were some silver linings, even if we're not going to dive into them too much. I mean, there, there were things like... 344 total yards allowed on defense with two sacks to your credit when you're in the face of a 26-0 loss. Your defense wasn't the problem. Meanwhile, you're talking about offensive linemen, both Connor McGovern and Elijah Vera Tucker. It doesn't matter who you're talking about. The Jets' offensive line is going to get Zach Wilson killed. Five sacks allowed again. He now leads the NFL. In, with 15 sacks and is tied with Trevor Lawrence for seven interceptions. Yep. He's not getting any assistance. And this is where you look at Chris. Remember when they threw, it was week one, Nathan Peterman came in here against the Baltimore Ravens back in 2018 and clearly was not an NFL caliber quarterback. 
Yeah. And they said, screw it. We had a plan, but we're going to put Josh Allen out there so that we don't lose this football team. And Josh Allen went out there and with limited help still found a way, even if he was taking, even if the, the, the scores were lopsided, he was still finding a way to make the offense look somewhat respectable in certain fashions. He's getting no help. I mean, you guys had 43 yards rushing. But you only tried to run the ball 13 times, which is a third of the number of times you tried to pass the ball. If you're facing a defense that's clearly eating your offensive line alive, that's not the way you help your quarterback. And so that brings me to the big point that I want to ask you about tonight. When I look at the way that the Jets organization went under this head coach search, I go back in my head because this popped in here as I'm watching the Thursday Night Football game. Matt Rule has done a, by, by and large, he's accepted as being a, good, a decent head coach and that he's done a good job inheriting what was kind of a mess of a Carolina team when he took it over. At least they have an identity. At least they have something going for him that, hey, we can air it out. We're going to have some interesting offensive concepts. When the Jets tried to hire him, he where they broke was that he wanted to pick his own staff and they said no right. you don't have any NFL experience you don't have that many NFL contacts so we are going to provide you with the staff and he looked around and I, I'm, I'm not saying this is what he said but I'm saying this is probably what he said he goes you guys haven't proven that you can pick the right personnel for anything why would I trust that you're gonna you're not you're gonna hand me the guys who are gonna help me instead of a lead anchor so he did rules exact words by the way where I don't believe in arranged marriages yes so that's my point he's not gonna go into war every Sunday with a group of guys that he didn't pick and that he doesn't trust so he had ever he was right for turning that down because I feel like everybody should want to die on that hill so now you look at Robert Sala. He comes up and the team probably says, okay, the last time around taking that hard line approach didn't work. This guy's been in the NFL for a few years and he's made some friends who are pretty well spoken about. Let's let him pick his own. And when you draw parallels to what the Buffalo Bills did in 20, 2017 when they hired Sean McDermott, Sean McDermott came in here as a defensive. Everyone's like, he's a good defensive mind. And he seems like a pragmatic guy who can be the CEO of a football team. People seem to rally to him. He's got a magnetic personality. We're going to trust him with this. His first order of business was to go out and get Rick Dennison, who it's funny that we talked about the play where all three of your wide receivers ended up in the same place. We had the same fucking problem with Rick Dennison. Rick Dennison against the against the Denver Broncos called a play where three of our wide receivers ended up within three yards of each other. And I snapped. I was like, you don't belong in the NFL. And they fired him at the end of the season. And they hired Brian Dable. But he brought in an offensive coordinator who'd been an offensive coordinator before for years. Right. Then... He hires Leslie Frazier as his defensive coordinator, who's not only a former defensive coordinator, but also a former head coach, and says, look, I need need your help. Help me get this thing off the ground. And then he leaned very hard onto the experience of those guys to really get this Buffalo Bills team up off the ground while he was still putting his own persona and putting his own stamp on this franchise. Robert Sala decided to go the route where he brought in a bunch of people who also, like him, have no experience running an NFL team. And I think we're seeing what that bears out. I mean, now, am I just, am I being mean? 
Or do you feel some of that when I say when you've got an offensive coordinator who's run not choosing not to run the ball in the face of a wilting pass rush because your line can't protect your quarterback when you've got a line that's not gelling even though they've put assets into it when you've got a rookie quarterback whose confidence you're watching it being destroyed when you're looking at a defense that Robert Sala is running the ship and they're doing what they can they're showing that they can be respectable but again, he's surrounded by other guys with no experience to help him get it up and actually running. Do you think that it was maybe something of a mistake to give him that carp launch? Well, to be fair, on the defensive side of the ball, that's not entirely true. Jeff Ulbrich was defensive coordinator of the Falcons last year. Okay. Uh, especially after Raheem Morris took over temporarily after they got rid of Dan Quinn. And he's actually, for the most part, done a good job to the point where my joke was, and we'll see how this progresses, I said to somebody, all we heard all offseason was, oh, my God, Mike LaFleur, he's going to leave after a year. Somebody's going to hire him as a head coach, and then Zach Wilson's going to be left in the dust. Jets fans shouldn't be worried about LaFleur at this point. They should be worried about Ulbrich leaving, but that's a different story. I think there's nothing wrong with giving your coach carte blanche to hire who he wants. In fact, I think that's the only way you're going to get a good coach because Adam Gase was somebody who he didn't care who you hired defensively. So if the condition for him getting the job was we want to hire Greg Williams or there's a defensive guy we want, he would have said, okay, whatever, I don't really care. I think with Salah, the other thing is, too, he was, so, he was too in demand that you, could, you couldn't pull that even if you wanted to. But I don't mind trusting the guy. The thing is that ultimately what it comes down to is you know, there's that sunk cost fallacy, right? So we'll see what happens if this keeps up. Now, again, let's keep in mind it's been three games, and LaFleur can certainly turn this around, but everybody was thinking that this guy was the next Shanahan because he learned at Shanahan's feet. But as you know, that doesn't always translate. No. And what, what it seems like so far, Brian Bassett, who we call the pod father for Jets podcast, I think – He's the first person to ever do a Jets podcast. He before, now does the show. Before I forget the joke, week. I'm going to throw it in here. The Dolphins are finding out the hard way that just because you learned at the feet of a master doesn't mean you're any good at it. <laughs> well, well yeah, sure, there you go. But but the thing is, Brian Bassett, who does uh, podcasts on my feed once a week, he said something along the lines of what what Lafleur has shown you is that he knows how to ape a Shanahan system, but he doesn't truly understand what makes the Shanahan system successful and how to use the personnel. I mean, I don't know if it's his call, Sal's call, or whatever, but this was the third week in a row that Denzel Mims was either inactive or week one, I think he got on the field for two snaps. By the way, one of those was a 40-yard completion, so take that for its worth. Jamison Crowder, they're saying he had some sort of problem with his groin after coming off the COVID list, but... Crowder has had supposedly said at one point that he felt fine, so no one really knows what's going on. But you look at this team that can't move the ball, can't score points, all this, and you've got Denzel Mims, who's 6'3", 215. We saw the flashes from last year. They'll sit there and tell you how good he was in practice all week, and then when the game comes, he's inactive, and he can't figure it out. And so between the, the strange management of these guys, and then just the bizarre play calling and the fact that he's just not – look, 
you can say what you want to about Josh McDaniels, but if you watch the Patriots so far, the one thing that you can say is that he's put Mac Jones in easy spots where it wasn't going to be difficult for him, which I get it. Mac Jones is different from Zach Wilson or from Trevor Lawrence. They're different types of quarterbacks, but still, when you have a rookie quarterback, you want to make it as easy on him as possible. LaFleur has done the opposite of that. And that's why what I'm saying is, and like you just talked about with Dennison and getting rid of him, it, there's a difference between forcing a coach to hire certain people and going to a coach and saying, look, I know this guy's your boy, but we picked this kid number two overall. We made all these additions on offense. And the results are horrendous. Now, again, three games in, I'm just saying, if this continues, and you say to him, look, we, we, we have full faith in you. You can pick whoever you want next, but this isn't working, and he needs to go. That's... And like you said, maybe this, is, maybe this comes down to, as you said, with Dable, and as was the case with Frazier, maybe it was a mistake to have a rookie head coach, a rookie coordinator, and a rookie quarterback now everybody's excited about it at the time but maybe this is why the Jets should have gone in another direction a coordinator I don't think anybody I can't remember anyone being against it myself included I was I was happy about the LaFleur hire I like the fact that there was synergy there but at the same time we'll see what happens over the next 14 weeks but if this continues I don't care what the relationship is whether it's Joe look Joe Douglas has to understand too you guys know this Joe Douglas basically hitched his wagon to Zach Wilson. Yep. So if Wilson struggles big time this year. Or if an offensive coordinator working, looks like he's going to be a threat to that quarterback's development, uh-huh. I don't think there's any question of what's going to happen there. Yeah. And, and, feel, free to, you and, and feel free to steal this. LaFleur was Schrodinger's offensive coordinator. Nobody knew whether it was going to suck or not, and you don't know until you watch it play out. Now we're watching it play out, and we go, wait a minute, maybe he's not offensive coordinator material. But, like you said, the season is long. We can still see it's just it's interesting that maybe all rookies at a lot of spots wasn't the right call. And it's now bearing, your chickens are coming home to roost. Before we let you go, next week's spread. The Jets are seven and a half point underdogs at home against the Titans. Do you agree or disagree with the spread? I mean, how could you disagree with it at this point? I mean, seriously, what have the Jets done that would make you think that a Tennessee team that's actually very good isn't going to come in here and easily cover that spread? I'm not going to lie. Look, to be fair, and and this is fair to Zach Wilson as well, the Jets did face three excellent defenses the first three weeks, so you got to keep that in mind as well. And Denver, look, say what you want to about Teddy Bridgewater, but they've got players all over. Like, they are a stacked roster, and if Bridgewater can continue to play well, that team is going to be in the mix, not just for a playoff spot, but potentially for the NFC West, uh, the AFC West, which looks like it might be the most interesting division in all of football this year. That said, Tennessee is a really good team, and the Jets haven't covered the spread once this year, and the last two weeks they got beat real bad. So I don't see what it is that you would have watched that would make you think that Tennessee wouldn't come in here and easily cover seven and a half points. So, look, it's one thing if they're major underdogs in London the following week against a terrible Atlanta team, and I don't know if you guys watched any of it, but that Atlanta uh, Falcons-New York Giants game 
was bad football personified. Now, see, I'd, just, I'd rather huff gasoline yeah. than watch that football game. Oh, it was it was awful. Unfortunately, in the local area, that was the only other matchup, so I had it on while I was doing other things. But it was it was horrible. If they're major underdogs to Atlanta, then maybe I, I would have this conversation with you next week and say, eh, I don't know. But with Tennessee, if I'm if I'm betting on this, which I'm not, I how could you not bet on Tennessee? I hear you. I hear you. Why don't you plug everything you got going on, where people can find you on social, and where they can find your shows over on your network? You got it. So this week will be fun. Tim Jenkins, as always, will come on. We'll dissect Zach Wilson's play. And like I told you guys, I think Wilson played significantly better than he's being given credit for. We're going to play another round of Tim the, the claims adjuster. And what we do with that, I think I told you guys last week, if Zach Wilson throws interceptions, I say, all right, Tim, you're a claims adjuster for an insurance company. What percentage blame goes to Zach Wilson here? And what percentage, uh, the, the, the amount that you're covering uh, with Zach Wilson as your client, and then uh, how much goes to other parties. So we'll do that, and we'll, we'll get a, a more complete picture of how Wilson played. We'll do some midweek news. We've got some film reviews coming up. The Thunder from Down Under, Luke Grant, put together a really good video of Mike LaFleur and why through three weeks he seems to be in over his head. Again, we're all keeping our fingers crossed, but Luke broke down why we're all very concerned right now. We're going to do uh, – the pregames have, have gotten interesting because, guys, what I, I used to do on the pregame reports that would go up just after midnight Sunday morning was we would talk about keys to the game and, and really go through the matchup. Now what I've been doing with Chris Nimbley, and it's been a lot more fun and people have enjoyed it, is we'll do the quick last-minute news and notes on the injury report and all that, but then – we take a look at the lines and we go through all of them. So not just Jets plus seven or whatever. It's all of the players. What are the odds that they score a touchdown? And then Chris will say, "Oh yeah, I'm taking I'm taking plus three fifty on so and so." And then we'll go through halftime spread and over under on yardage for certain players. And it's just been a lot more fun to do it that way. So again, seven days a week of content. We've got playlikeajet.com, the podcast. We've got the YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed yet, go ahead and do that. Uh, you can find the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, Google, anywhere where you download podcasts. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. Boys, look forward to talking to you next week. And if this keeps up, uh, like you said, I didn't think there was any way that this offense could be less productive without Adam Gase. But... We truly live in bizarre times. And now to recap the New England Patriots, the who I feel like I, I, I feel like they're the team that I don't know how to feel about the AFC East after they lost twenty-eight to thirteen to the Saints. Mike Mike Debate from Lockdown Patriots, you're here to talk to us about this. In the intro to the show, we. Listen to what might have been the most curmudgeon line in a long, illustrious history of curmudgeon lines <laughs> from Bill Belichick. How was that received in the room when you were when you were a part of that press conference? Uh, probably about the same way you would imagine it was received. Uh, probably not well. And uh, I mean, really, I mean, it's kind of indicative of the response that he gave. Uh, same thing you did. You know, that's pretty much it. That's that's kind of how it was received. Look, bottom line, when you're 
down and you're you're down in a one two hole now in the uh, in the in the season, and you're also looking at a situation where you just lost twenty eight to thirteen. Yeah, Bill wasn't in the best of moods. This was a, kind of a perfect storm response, and yeah, it was it kind of was what it was uh, in true Belichickian fashion. <laughs> it it made for the most hilarious audio, and here's the thing I've always thought about Bill Belichick. He's like Greg Popovich, right? Greg Popovich has he makes it very clear in, in the NBA that he has no time or patience for the media. My favorite was he got interviewed in half court during halftime of a game, a playoff game when they were losing. And the guy comes walking up to him and sticks the microphone out and he goes, he's on live TV being broadcast across the entire nation and he goes, you have three he goes you have three questions. And he goes, all right, so what do you think you guys didn't struggle with in the first half? And he goes, we didn't score enough points. All right, so what do you think that uh, you're going to change going into the second half? We're going to score more points. And then he asked a third question, and he literally looked at the camera and he was like, where'd you find this guy? And walked away. I was like, this, this, Bill Belichick's response to that reporter is on par with what he did in that moment. Like, it's the most dismissive but intentionally dismissive thing and I'm, not, I'm a curmudgeon. I'm, I'm a guy who I have a lot of ill will. I know what that emotion is. It's just weird to see it on the Patriots franchise two years in a row. Like two years in a row, here's Bill Belichick being salty in post-game press conferences. We're only three games into the year. What does that dynamic, this relationship between Bill and the media, I'm so interested in it. Do you see this, that if the team starts, do you think he still holds, maybe in his head a little bit of like, hey, you should treat me with more respect because I won you so much? Do you think that that's kind of the dynamic that fuels responses like that? I don't necessarily know if that's the dynamic that fuels the response. I think there is a love-hate relationship between Bill and the media. Look, Bill is truculent at times. There are difficulties getting information out of him. Then there are times where he will go on a tirade and he will be able to, you know, I will tirade probably wrong choice of words. There are times where he'll go on a tirade. I've heard I've been on the receiving end of a couple of those, not <laughs> me personally, but on the opposite end in the press room listening to this, it always it hasn't always been easy, but uh, there are some times where you'll ask Bill a very meaningful football question, and he'll go on and on about it. Just two weeks ago, he gave everyone on a Zoom conference, all of the members of the media, a, about a 1,500-word lesson on the history of the long snapper, and he did it all off the top of his head. This is a guy that knows his football. If you ask him something where he feels engaged, he will talk your ear off, and he'll do it gladly. The problem is, is that Boston media has a tendency to be sensationalized. It's a big market, Boston, New York, L.A. These types of markets are going to have those types of sensationalized questions. That's not what Bill Belichick likes. It's not what he uh, it's not his wheelhouse. And because he's very hesitant to answer those questions, it can be a little bit difficult at times. And that's led to some back and forth in the media. And now it's almost like both sides I don't want to say kind of playing a little bit of um, 
role-playing in a lot of ways, but in a way I think they're kind of playing a role a little bit when it comes to the villain, when it comes to the antagonist, things like that. Uh, it, it's it's a little bit sensationalized, but uh, I, I don't think it's a motivation where Bill is trying to stick it to the media because of the success that he's had. I think Bill really does look at things one day, one moment at a time, and when you're asked questions that don't really involve his wheelhouse, which is preparation and planning for a football game, just rubs him the wrong way. I've said it before. The reason that his his and Brady's relationship was what it was, now that we've gotten to see what Brady is in Tampa, and we see that he's he's got a personality. He cracks jokes now. He's on social media making fun of things. He's opening up in interviews that he never would have done in New England. I think the thing was they, they were very different people. But the thing that they bonded over for 20 years of domination in the AFC East is that they were football zealots. Right. And if you share that fanatical love of the sport of football, Bill Belichick's your best friend. If you don't, or if he feels like you're being flippant, I can absolutely see where he comes at you the way he came at that reporter and just gave him nothing to a question that was kind of valid. Just, hey, what did you see? What are you talking about? That's a throwaway question. It's it's just funny to me that we've reached this point in the cycle of the Bill Belichick coaching experience. Now, in terms of your game against the Saints, first of all, I said at the top of the show, the Saints might be the most confusing team in the NFL right now. Mm. Are they good? Do they stink? One, you know, one week they blow out the Packers, then they get thrashed against the Carolina Panthers. And then they come out and they play you guys and they handily win the game. And I look at some of the statistics, like I see things, they, the, the, I, I just don't know what to think of them. Are they good? Are they not? I mean, it just depends on who you listen to. But when I look at the numbers, there's a couple things that stick out to me. And the first one is that Mac Jones led your team in rushing with 28 yards. <laughs> that right there. What went wrong on that front? Because that was supposed to be the identity of the New England Patriots. Yeah, without question. And I think uh, all of Patriots Nation is asking themselves that question. Look, bottom line, Trent Brown's injury, and we talked about this last week, guys, has definitely impacted that offensive line. It's impacted their ability to get to the line of scrimmage, be able to get yards beyond the line of scrimmage, and extend plays on the ground. They haven't been able to do it. They just can't find that rhythm. Damian Harris has been slow to get to the box. It's been a little difficult on him carrying the entire load. James White goes down in the first quarter of uh, Sunday's game. He's got uh, a hip injury now, and it's not looking good, guys. Uh, We're not sure exactly how long he'll be out, but a selection like the one he has in his hip is never a good sign for a running back. So the Patriots right now, the running back core all of a sudden, which was such a strength of this team heading into the season, is a little bit suspect. Kyrus continues to be the feature back. He will be, but who's going to take on that James White role? Is it going to be Brandon Bolden, the veteran that took it over on Sunday? Is it going to be Ramondre Stevenson coming off of the Belichickian equivalent of double secret probation because he had problems holding on to the football early on in game one against the Miami Dolphins? J.J. Taylor also could be in the mix, but the Patriots are keeping their options open in the run game. So there's a lot that still needs to happen with the rush in order 
to be able to live up to the expectations that they had prior to the season, but a lot of it begins and ends with the offensive line. Mack was constantly under pressure on Sunday. Um, another game in which he found himself under pressure, 17 dropbacks he was pressured on, was hit 11 times on Sunday, he took two sacks, uh, clearly evident that when New Orleans ran those blitz packages with the six rushers, followed by some situational five-man rush, New England just couldn't block it. The offensive line just could not block that. So well, they need to do a better job, and it just, it's just it's got to come quickly. It's funny you mention that because center, right guard, and right tackle combined for 12 pressures, nine hurries, and three of his hits. What kind of a role does all that pressure – when people talk about that, you hear it in the intro when he's talking. When Bill Jack's like, I, you saw the same thing I did. So don't don't ask me a leading question when you ask me about my quarterback's interceptions. He's back there getting hammered because my offensive line isn't executing. Do you believe that they play a direct role in some of the struggles of Mac Jones? Yeah, absolutely. I do believe it does play a direct role. And look, I'm not saying it's the only factor, but even in uh, the situation where you know, Mac throws the interception, his first interception. He was under constant duress. Uh, Ellis was really all over him at that point. He basically made the throw from his knees. That's a rookie mistake. That's an ill-advised throw. He shouldn't have done it. But the position that he was put in was because of the constant pressure that he was under on the right side. And it's not just the right side. I know the statistics definitely skew that in that direction. But Isaiah Wynn, as left tackle, has also been letting up pressures as well. He hasn't necessarily been that aggressive astra protector that he has been in the past. Isaiah Wynn has a strike-first mentality, and he hasn't been doing that. He's been a little slow getting out of the box, really not getting the push off of his stance that he has been getting in the past. That has hampered him. And if the Patriots are having difficulty on both sides of the line, that's the type of problems you're going to see having for any quarterback, and let alone a rookie like Mac Jones who's still learning the ropes. It was just a perfect storm of sludge, basically, for the New England Patriots on Sunday. And, you know, just one of those games that you want to put behind you. And it's not really easy to do that when you look at the next opponent on the schedule. No, but I'll say this. It wasn't all terrible. For as much as I'd love to sit here and make this, you know, 15, 20 minutes of trashing the Patriots, you guys accomplished something that I'm really interested in picking your brain about. You guys gave up only 128 yards passing. It's the fourth worst day of Winston's career as a starter. How? What did you guys do in pass protection that kept them from being able to move the ball through the air? Well, in a lot of ways, what the Patriots love to do is to be able to try to take away what the other team does well. And that starts with taking away Alvin Kamara. Kamara had a decent game, but for the most part, Patriots were able to hold him in check. And look, they're getting some uh, accomplishments and they're getting some um, contributions from some of the new faces that I think have been arguably their best defenders up until this point. Three guys I really want to give a lot of kudos to that I thought played very well on Sunday. Obviously, Matt Judon continues to be the gem of this defense. I think he's the top defender for the Patriots on nearly every snap that he takes. Wait, better than Dante uh, Hightower? Do have, better sorry? than Dante Hightower? 
Well, I mean, if you're talking long-term contribution, obviously high No, no, no. But I mean, here in defense, but in terms of productivity and in terms of what wow. they're doing on the field, yeah, Judon has been head and shoulders above everyone, including Dante. Two and a half sacks, two tackles for a loss, three quarterback hits on Sunday, continuously putting pressure. He was about the only one that was able to get consistent pressure on Jameis Winston. He's also helping to funnel some of that running game into the middle, and that's really where New Orleans can do some damage if they're able to get that running game going. So in a lot of ways, Matt Judon really helped keep that New Orleans uh, you know, offense in check. Unfortunately, the Patriots uh, you know, had some letdowns as well where some of the four-man rush that they were using was succeeding ended up being three-man rush. Even though they looked like they were going to rush four, they ended up only rushing three because guys were out of position. That's going to be uh, short up as well. But the middle part of that defensive line is also showing signs of coming together and gelling. Uh, Devon Godchow had five run stuffs, five tackles uh, in the process on Sunday. He's been very good in the middle part of that defensive line. And Christian Barmore continues to show I think an ability beyond his years to push the pocket, get pressure on opposing quarterbacks. That all helped to keep the uh, Saints passing game in check on Sunday. Chris, do you have any idea how sick and tired I am of hearing all of our division opponents talk about how great all of the Alabama players that I've gotten to watch be great for Alabama? Go to their teams and and grow into these electric players. Meanwhile, what do we get? Uh, Marcel Darius and Reggie Ragland. You're welcome. Reggie Ragland, Marcel Darius, and the left tackle who never played. Cyrus Quandro. Cyrus Quandro. Yeah. We always get the short end of the stick on the Alabama prospects. Why is that? I mean, Mike, do you, do, do you know anything about this? Like, Why are the Bills constantly getting the worst of the Alabama product? Uh, gee, I don't know. Bill Belichick and Nick Saban are pretty close. Maybe yeah, you should right? try to, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should, uh, um, you know, uh, take maybe, a look maybe, at, maybe Sean McDermott needs to go down there, bring some oatmeal cream pies because we know that that's what Nick Saban likes to have for breakfast, and try to <laughs> try to endear himself to the man. But no, I'll I'll say this: I see a direct a direct line from Nick Saban to Bill Belichick. It's one of those things that's actually, for me as a college football fan, Chris, I don't know about you, you don't have a team that you root for. You root for Alabama, I mean uh, Auburn. Yeah, my brother went to Auburn, so I pay attention to Auburn. But he doesn't root for them in the sense that he's like... It it doesn't ruin my day. It doesn't affect him emotionally. When I didn't give a damn about college football, I got in with a friend of mine back in 2002 who, this was when Alabama was still under penalty. And his whole family had gone to Alabama. And I started watching college football with him. And I said, well, if I'm going to hitch my wagon to a team, I'll, they, they seem like the Bills. Like, everything just sucks for them. <laughs> but they're fun, maybe, and I can do this with my buddy. And then they hired Nick Saban. And then they became the Patriots of college football. And I can see the clear line where he and Bill Belichick would get along. Because they both run their teams the same way. They both have the same fanatical obsession with football, and they, they have the same cold demeanor to the outside, which you heard at the top of the show. If you're a guy on the outside asking some questions that he doesn't appreciate, he's going to let you know it. And at the same time, his players all joke around about how loose he is around them. The, I mean, Chris, you saw that. The D's nuts thing with Nick Saban? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> N- I've heard stories about how Bill Belichick will make his players laugh all the time, and they're like, 
wait a minute, wait. Well, that guy has a sense of humor? I thought he was just a football zombie. No. He's he's just a complicated human who loves the game of football more than anything else on earth. And yeah, you guys were blessed. That's right. Yeah, and you guys were blessed with him for 20 years of winning football. Now that you're here, I have to ask the question. At 1 and 2, was this loss more or less deflating than the loss to Miami? You had to use the word deflating, didn't you? I, I, I did. Guess, I guess oh! it's Brady week. I guess it's part of the deal. But <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I am only kidding. Uh, if that wasn't intentional, then that was gold. That was really. I, I give it was not intentional. That. That was and I love the fact that, that was out in the Matthew McConaughey ether right there. That was great. <laughs> but, uh, no, all kidding aside, um, this was. Uh, I don't want to say it was a backbreaking loss because it wasn't. I mean, when you're one and two, Bill Belichick has been one and two with the New England Patriots before, and they won a Super Bowl that year. So it's not out. You know, outlandish to think that this team can still rebound. Now, is this team what the 2001 team was? Most likely not. Uh, I don't think they have the veterans. I don't think they necessarily have, um, you know, the, the horses that that team had to be able to rattle off those wins. But the season still is not over for New England. One in three is going to be very difficult to come back from. And I know a lot of people want to automatically pencil in this loss on Sunday, especially after Tom and the Buccaneers lost to the Rams on Sunday as well. Tom's going to come in wanting scorched earth. But at the same time, Tom knows Bill Belichick better than anybody, but Bill Belichick knows Tom Brady better than anybody as well. So this is going to be the ultimate chess match coming up. I can't wait to watch this matchup. It's going to be so fun to watch from Gillette on Sunday. But bottom line the new england patriots need to start stringing together some consistent solid football matthew slater their special teams captain spoke to the media earlier this week and he said that he says look as in as, as great as this is going to be from a patriot standpoint to see tom brady come back and and all the camaraderie that's uh, resulting from it the patriots need to get back to winning football and that's what they're going to be working on starting tomorrow when they hit the practice field the spread is the Patriots. Right now, I saw it as high as six and a half. The Patriots mm. are plus six and a half at home versus the Buccaneers. Do you agree or disagree with the spread? It's tough to argue against it because you'd be arguing against Tom Brady and that high-powered offense and a Bucks defense that is capable of getting after the passer. And look, teams are licking their chops right now when it comes to the New England Patriots. Looking at Mac Jones getting banged around in the backfield there. Uh, you know, teams with solid front sevens like Tampa Bay are coming in here and looking at it and saying, we can get there and we can get beyond that offensive line. Now, I will caution everyone to think that if – Trent Brown is back in the lineup, and I don't know. We haven't been given any indication as to how close he is to coming back. We've seen him on the practice field. Uh, he's been limited. Uh, you know, he was a healthy, he was not a healthy, but he was an injury scratch on Sunday. If he's back in the lineup and he's even close to what he normally can be, changes the whole complexity of that offensive line. Now, all of a sudden, you've got Shaq Mason that can play alongside him and be a formidable right side. Isaiah Wynn and Michael Wainu can anchor in, and now David Andrews can relax a little bit as well, knowing that he doesn't have to compensate for what's not going on on the right side. If that's the case, Patriots may be able to make this one close, and in that respect, then that 6.5 all of a sudden looks like a really, really big spread, but... Tom can stop picking his spots, and I've seen him do it several times. Uh, again, it could be a long night in Foxborough for the hometown team. Chris, how weird is it that all of the years that we bared the brunt of Tom Brady's aggression, now we're going to get to watch it turned on the Patriots. 
I love it. I'm there. I'm I'm for it. I'm for all of this. This is one of those moments where I I I like the fa- it's like I'm an old man now. I feel I feel old watching football because I remember when you guys were handing us our shit over and over and over again, especially after a loss. Yeah, the Patriots would play the Bills, and you guys might have lost once in the last two games, and we'd say, oh, we have a chance. We could do this. And you would just give it to us. Now the Patriots are on the receiving end, maybe, of Brady's Hall of Fame ability. It's just, it, to your point, it's one of the most compelling storylines in football that you can find. It just sucks to think that a guy as nice as you, Mike, might be on the wrong end. <laughs> we love you. Yeah. Where can people find your work and where can they find you on social this week? Well, guys, thanks a ton for always having me on. I, I love coming on with you guys. It's always a lot of fun. You can find me on the Bird app uh, at M-D-A-B-A-T-E-N-F-L. Find all of my written work at Patriot Maven of Sports Illustrated. And, of course, Monday through Friday, every single day, breaking down Locked On Patriots, uh, free and available wherever you get your podcasts. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And so then, you know, this is one of those moments, Chris, as I'm sitting in the stadium on Sunday and I'm looking at the scoreboard. It might have been the thing I was most closely scoreboard watching. Now, I, I obviously I was hate watching what was going on in you know with the Kansas City Chiefs and the Chargers. But this Miami game really had me boggled, and I, I've got a lot of questions. And here, <laughs> run them all down with me tonight. Is Tiaga. How are you doing, sir? Uh, great. <laughs> are, is it great? Is it? It's it's fine right now. I'll let you know in a few weeks. Uh, <laughs> you know how great it is. So the Miami Dolphins lose thirty-two to twenty in overtime to the Raiders. Who I I feel like the Raiders are. I feel like they're that team that's not great. They just keep getting away with like they just keep getting away with shit. And yeah. this and the way this game played out seems to just give that credence. When I when I look up at the scoreboard and I see that you guys are winning fourteen nothing, and I'm pleasantly surprised. I'm like, all right, Jacoby Brissett must be doing his thing. All right, he's he's the, the, they don't have any tape on him. Maybe their offense is getting off to a hot start. And then in the third quarter, fourth quarter, I'm looking up and I'm like, oh, well, they're behind. They only scored ten more points since then. What 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 fell apart for them? And then I and then I open up Twitter and just put in the search bar Dolphins, 
and it's just a disaster. <laughs> Dolphin Stutter's on fire. Walk me through this. So you have the lead, and then what? What, what happened? Well, I'll give you the entire game if you want it. Uh, they start off the game. We start hitting Derek Carr. He throws an interception to Atlanta Roberts. Atlanta Roberts returns it 75 yards for a touchdown. We're up 7 nothing. Uh, they get the ball back. John Gruden decides to be the smartest man in the room and try to run it up the middle on third and one from his own 40. We stone him for no gain. He says, you know what? We're going to go for it at our own 40, we're gonna, and we're going to run the same exact play up the middle on fourth and one. We stop him again. Two plays later, we hand it to Malcolm Brown. He runs it in from like 30 yards out. We're up 14 nothing. Then we decide to do the dumbest thing I've ever seen anybody ever do. And we ran like like double smoke screens on the outside. And usually what you do is you have the double smoke screen, you're two by two. We were at our own one yard line. Okay. <laughs> and then you send the inside guys deep. And then what you do is you release the tight end to try to dump it off over the middle. For whatever reason, Jacoby Brissett decides, you know what? I'm throwing it to one of the decoy guys. <laughs> and, he, and he throws it to Waddle. Waddle has to jump up to get it. And of course he gets tackled. There's a safety. This they is- allow a field goal. This one play. drive, next thing you know, it's 14-12. And then in the second half, uh, it seems like Brian Forge decided, you know what, we're just going to run it and we're going to take the air out of the out of the football. I'm going to try to win this game 14-12 the rest of the way. <laughs> they give up some points in the fourth quarter because the offense keeps punting it away after running three plays. They fall behind, and as soon as they fall behind, they decide, you know what, we're going to spread it out. <laughs> We're going to actually insert our $11 million a year wide receiver in Will, in Will Fuller. We're going to throw it deep to Devontae Parker. We're going to go no huddle. We're not even going to run the ball anymore. And all of a sudden, we start looking like the greatest show on turf. And we drive it right down inside of four minutes. We tie it up when we were down two touchdowns. We tie it up, and then we get the two-point conversion. We go to overtime. In overtime, we allow a field goal to open overtime. We get the ball back. And now we need a field goal to tie it, right, to extend overtime or a touchdown to win it. Mm-hmm. We throw a bomb to Devontae Parker down to the, the 30-yard line. They obviously interfere with him. We do not get that call. It's fourth and 20, and Mike Gusecki makes one of the greatest catches you will ever see to convert a fourth and 20. I know it had to be good because my uncle immediately started texting me. He's like, in all caps, because he's old. And that's just I I don't even I don't even want to give him credit being like oh he was excited I think he's just old and doesn't understand how phones work he's all caps we need to try to get Mike Kosicki on the fantasy team it's like what do you what okay something must have happened that makes Mike Kosicki look like the next coming of Gronk that's the only reason I would get a text like this well it was an insane catch and then of course it's uh. I believe it was a second and two or something. They go a play action. They throw a bomb to Will Fuller. And this had touchdown written all over it. Jonathan Abrams obviously interferes with the official staring right at it. He does not throw his flag. Had he thrown his flag, the Dolphins win, the Dolphins win that game going away right there. Then they run some some type of screen on, on third and, and four. They run like a... Uh, shovel pass to Mike Gusecki. He gets three yards. They decide against going for it. They kick the field goal. They tie it. 
And then the Raiders get the ball back. They drive it down. Uh, we we keep trying to do this thing where we go off sides to try to change the angle of the kick, <laughs> which is which I thought it was brilliant. But when Madden? we started doing it, I feel like that's we, a mad maneuver. That's something you do when you want your opponent to rage quit. You just keep jumping off sides, and you're like, "Listen, I'll make the rest of this game take an hour." <laughs> yeah, because they set up for like a 38 yard field goal, and we decided, you know what? If we keep going off sides and we go off sides on this side, they put the ball on that hash and we start closing up the angle on them. <laughs> and they did it twice and they said, all right, we're, we're fine with right there. And then they put on some type of kick kick block. They made the field goal game is over. But in, in, all, in all honesty, they probably didn't deserve to win the game for as many mistakes as they did that they did make. But... They got screwed out of this game. See, and that's, that was well. That's what's frustrating is watching it in retrospect and seeing all the tweets about officiating and all these things. I mean, is it fair to say that the if we're talking good, bad, and ugly, the officiating might fit that ugly category? Because it sounds like on multiple occasions they gave you guys some real questionable, real questionable treatment. Yeah, it was it, it was odd to say the least, especially when you had in in one respect. Uh, we run an all-out blitz on Derek Carr, and really, you know, it, there was actual restraint. If you watch the play, there's restraint from Jerome Baker. He just he, he even he even jumps out of the way, almost injures his own player, and Derek Carr just stumbles over, and they call us for for roughing the passer, and then on a subsequent drive. Uh, Brissett throws it away. Max Crosby takes a run at him, absolutely murders him, and the official stares at it, and after our entire sideline comes off the sideline ready to fight, they finally throw a flag. <laughs> you know, it just seemed like they, they kept looking like, okay, uh, it looked like the, the officials were saying, okay, Raiders, go ahead and win this already, please, so we can get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know? I, I was just really upset. Look, if you don't want to call the one on, on Devontae Parker – Fine. Although that one was pretty egregious, because it's obvious that Trevin Mullen gets there way, way too early. But the Jonathan Abrams Abrams one, I've seen that a million times. Mm -hmm. Whenever you have a safety trailing a wide receiver who's wide open for a touchdown, that flag gets thrown a lot. That flag gets thrown like nine times out of ten. I guess we caught the one time out of ten, and especially when it's Will Fuller, like he's a deep threat. Everybody in the league knows he's a deep threat. They're throwing him a bomb. The ball is on target, and Jonathan Abram pulls him down. I'm pretty sure you've seen the picture all over. Oh, yeah. See, now yeah. I'm hearing you explain it, I, I have a little more context, and I'm sure our listeners do. Uh, the Bills fan, fan base has a better perspective on why everyone's so upset. Now, in terms of what else I saw, you got some good and you got some bad. Your front seven looked really good for stretches of this game. I mean, a sack, two tackles for loss. I I feel like the front seven and the interior of the defensive line did a nice job. Just Yeah, we have the two. We currently own the two defensive tackles that lead the league in tackles for losses. Mm -hmm. Kristen Wilkins and Zach Sealer, (laughs) who's a guy who I've told you a bunch of times, nobody talks about. He is a bona fide star. So his why? only problem is that his name is not Raekwon Davis and it's not Christian Wilkins. Well, and and that's know, it. He, he doesn't dance press. around like Christian Wilkins every time <laughs> he makes a play. So, but Zach Sealer, if he were a free agent tomorrow, every league, every team in the league that's been paying attention would want him. And the He's crazy, a star. The crazy He's a star, part period. for me, too, is watching that you guys led for 38 minutes of the game. You guys had the lead. 
So to know yeah. that this all kind of evaporated. Now, one of the things that I did see, and I think it's a fair question, and I want your opinion of it, because, again, I troll our fan bases, Twitters, just, just to see what they're talking about. One of the many complaints I saw was of this, and it's, it seems like it's getting legs, is this idea that maybe running our offensive coordinator position like the office where you have co-managers, where it's Jim and Michael Scott, and they're both like they have separate offices. But, hey, one of you is going to handle big picture and one of you is going to handle day to day. And no one really knows what those things are because they're too ambiguous. <laughs> You've got a dual offensive coordinatorship going on here. And I, I've seen a couple tweets from some people that were actually well-crafted where they talked about how this dichotomy you just described, where... In one portion of the game, you say, hey, we're going to throw the ball a little bit. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then all of a sudden, it's like a whole other offensive coordinator steps in and says, no, now we're going to run the ball. And then when things get ugly, it's like a whole like he hands the wheel off to somebody else. And now that guy's in charge and the offense looks completely different. It's way more effective. Do you think that the dynamic of two offensive coordinators might be causing more issues than you originally envisioned. It's extremely possible. And in fact, probably probable because today they asked Brian Flores, they asked the coordinators to try to explain certain calls and they danced around it. And they did that thing that new England always does, which is, you know, we're on to the Colts <laughs> and we're on to the Colts and we understand that we have to get more big plays and they ask them the questions. You know, the question that you want answered around here, and everybody's been saying it, is why is it when you have the entire playbook completely open to you, you look in that, and when the defense knows that you have to throw the ball, all of a sudden you get things done. How is that possible? Yeah. no. And why are good things happening when you throw the ball far to these really fast wide receivers, which is the reason you got them in the first place. Why do good things seem to keep happening? But then why do you deviate from that? Like, I'm exactly. looking at this statistic right here, and it's mind-boggling. First of all, two data points out of this game that blow my mind. First of all, you're talking about, I think, Jacoby Brissett, Chris, and I... Some, call in if you know. I know it's a shtick from our report podcast, but Jacoby Brissett might be the first quarterback to be responsible for a safety while throwing a forward pass, like completing a forward pass and having it still go for a safety. I don't know that I've seen that in my adult life. That confused me. And now that you've explained how the play was designed, I see it. I just don't get it. And then I look at Waddell's stat, like just this weird statistic with him. He's third in the NFL in catches, but he's like 50th in yardage. Yes. I thought the whole purpose of getting him was because he was a field-stretching threat, that he was a guy who, even though he's short, he's so quick, he can get up the seam, find some gaps in between safeties, and stretch the field and open things up for other players. Yeah, but they're using him more like a like a Wes Welker for whatever reason, and I can understand that because he could you know, he could run away from, from cornerbacks and convert third downs, and he's done that for us so far this season. Like He's played his role. Ideally, he's supposed to look like – you got to throw out the Buffalo game. He was just awful in that Buffalo game. But ideally, he's supposed to look like what he looked like against New England. You know, the nice little four or five catches for about 70 yards with one big play for 36, a touchdown, and call it a day. In this game, for whatever reason, 
they kept doing the same thing over and over again. And they kept, kept getting the same success, which is part of the problem is that they have some pet plays that they found some success and they're just going to run them right into the ground until they're not good anymore. You know what that and makes me think of? It makes me think, as you're describing as I'm thinking of Knocked Up, where they're watching Seth Rogen dance with that, uh, with uh, whatever, Catherine Heigl for the first time in the club. And they're like, he's doing the dice thing too much. It's like, it's his holy move. It's all he's got. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, I thought that uh, my podcast mate had a great, great point on the podcast this week. And he says there's a difference between the starting quarterback and a backup quarterback. And Jacoby Brissett, like he's considered a, like a coach on the team. Everybody says that when he's retired, he's probably going to go into coaching. Pretty smart guy. But it's different in practice. You've had two situations already. Tua backed up at his one-yard line, gets a run called into the huddle, and he, in the huddle, changes the play and says, look, I'm going to get out of this, but we're going to run the same look, and I'm going to throw a backside slant to Parker to get out of our, our own goal line. Mm-hmm. The game on the line, <laughs> okay, against the, the Patriots. He completes a 14-yard pass. They're out of their own end zone. And people got to remember, because everybody's, oh, you know, but, you know, it, it, the defense won it for them. They really didn't win it for them. No, the Dolphins they, had the ball at their own one-yard line with 3.58 left in the oh, game. Oh, and if you don't convert, you can't burn enough clock that it matters. Right. So they got to kill off three minutes and 58 seconds of the game to win the game from their own one-yard line. And they drove it out to the 40 and killed the entire three minutes and 58 seconds. They don't do that if Tua doesn't throw that backside slant. Then you have the situation with with uh, Brissett where he gets that play called. He has to understand that those are decoys. Yeah, don't throw the ball to the decoy. Well, it's, it reminds me of Griff Whalen on what what did they say? It's the worst fake punt of all time where Griff yeah. Whalen goes out there for the Colts on Sunday Night Football against the Patriots. He missed all of the installation, and they said, listen, when this happens, if you see this, kill the play. And instead, he snapped the ball and just got engulfed by 40 guys. <laughs> like, wait a minute. What just happened? <laughs> He needs to know not to throw the ball to a guy who's never supposed to touch the ball in that scenario. I get what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, we ran we ran a fake uh, fake field goal uh, a couple of years ago against the Eagles. That was so well explained. I, I believe you, you you have to have seen it. Oh, our sure field goal kicker threw a touchdown pass to our punter. Yeah, no, <laughs> I remember. Saw, I saw that. I do. I I, I think was that Christian Wilkins was just pointing and laughing. Yeah, yeah, Chris yeah he was just pointing and laughing at the other team. I yeah, see again. Just, I'm a petty man. I'm a huge fan of petty behavior, and that made me laugh a lot. I'm like, you and, know what, big man, point at that guy, laugh at him. And the way it was explained was that he had two options. When they line up under center and they snap the ball right to the to the kicker. First of all, they were going to spread everybody out, but when they snap it to the to the to the the punter. He's supposed to look, and if they have the numbers, if he counts less than three, they run it right up the middle behind three blockers with the kicker. But who cares? It's three blockers against two blockers, right? against two guys, right? The other option was just to roll out, and the play was actually designed, you know what? They're not going to cover the punter. <laughs> They're going to ignore him. And our field goal kicker actually said in the postgame press conference, you know, I thought our coaches were crazy, but sure enough, when I rolled out, they actually ignored the snapper and left them wide open, so I just threw it to them. 
which is exactly what happened. Well, that that, so, that reminds me of the Buffalo Bills back in the uh, early to mid two Hawks. Ryan Denny, he's a defensive end. He was a special teamer. He did the play from the movie The Longest Yard. He literally, like, they line up in a field goal formation, and he's over by the sideline on sides talking to the official. <laughs> but he's inbounds. And then they snap the ball and just pitch it to him. And he's wide open. <laughs> he just runs 40 yards down the field for a touchdown. And everyone's yeah. looked, just, just stuck looking around going, wait, what the hell just happened? That was one of the greatest calls. I, I, I don't know if you remember in the night, Webster Slaughter. Yes. Yes. Okay. The the Cleveland Browns one time ran that against the uh, Cincinnati Bengals, and they did it so well. They did it so well that they ended up changing a rule where <laughs> when you line up for a field goal, if you're outside of the tackle box, you have to declare yourself. So, yep. no. so they have to know you're on the field because what the Browns did was that they lined up for a field goal, and they had Webster Slaughter just, Webster Slaughter just walk off the field like, okay, I'm going to the sidelines. But then he, he stopped just short. On the oh, yeah, just, and nobody's paying attention, and then it goes the other way for six. So yeah. now you guys are stuck here. You're one and two. You're faith- I look at the spread for next week. You guys are only one-and-a-half-point favorites against the winless Colts. Uh, the, you know, Glass Joe at quarterback. They've got a whole boatload of injuries between ankle sprains for guys who are already hurt. They're going to be missing members of their secondary, their linebacking core. The fact that you guys are only a one and a half point favorite, do you agree or disagree with that? Because, I mean, I know what they're taking into account. They saw you guys give up more than 20 yard, like more than 20 yard receptions to five different Raiders players. Despite that supposedly being the strength of the defense, they watched Eichenberg, Jackson and Davis all post horrific pass block grades and essentially almost get Brissett killed. They're looking at that and saying, well, that, sh- that should be enough to keep this game close. Do you yeah. agree with their assessment when they crafted that line, or do you think the Dolphins are better than that? Yeah, I think, uh, I think they're a little off, just like they were a little off in the, in the Raider line. I felt that the line was a, little bit, uh, it was, it was a little bit too wide, and that's why I took it. <laughs> and I made a little money this week uh, on betting on the Dolphins because I felt that four was a little bit outside of where it should have been. I felt that that game should have been – a pick em. because you got to think about where it was in the offseason. That game was a pick em on the road. Raiders are better than they were since the offseason. And the Dolphins are a little worse, right, because they had just lost to the Bills 35 nothing. So I felt that that line was a little bit too inflated, so I took it. I think this one's deflated. And there's no reason why Miami shouldn't just kill that team this this, this weekend. They're like they're expected they're expected to beat the the Colts this weekend. Well for, on. for your sake I hope they're right. Are we is the yard work series coming back? Well whenever Game Pass decides to not be ripping off their customers anymore, it'll come back. <laughs> but as of right now, Game Pass and the NFL are still ripping us off so <sighs> Well, where can everybody just, find your podcast and where can they find you on social? Because you guys are great. You personally are a great follow. Three yards per carry, the, the, hand, the, the, the show's handle is fine. Your personal Twitter account is a hilarious follow. Oh, yeah. Although I'm, I'm doing a lot less tweeting on Sundays because <laughs> people have just lost their, 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 their yes, sir. ever-loving minds. I know what that's But like. you could find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, iTunes, wherever. Just put three yards per carry. That's the number three yards per carry. You can find us 
Online, of course, on Twitter, the number three yards per carry. Myself, Alf underscore Artiaga. Scott Mason, Alf Artiaga, and Mike Debate, three of the best that cover the division. Kind of like former WCW trio, the Jersey Triad. Oh, my God. How, how many more of these do you have up your sleeve? Like, I, why is wrestling such an infuriating? Like, it's it's one of those things where I remember as a kid, I liked it, right? Yeah, if you I grew up in the Attitude Era, yeah, if, and I loved if Attitude you, Era wrestling. If you didn't watch the WWF and WCW from, like, 97 until 2001, like, what were you doing with your life? But then it the was pro- the hottest thing on the planet. But then the problem is, is that, like, now as an adult, I look back on some of those storylines... And I go, you know, I'm surprised. Like, I was 13, so I can understand how I found that entertaining. But uh, the concept that, like, Vince McMahon was in a limousine and they blew it up with him inside. Oh, yeah, that was a little little bit after. They had a funeral for him. And then Owen Hart died. There's Eddie. Eddie Guerrero. Oh, Eddie Guerrero died, and they had to kill the story so that he could come out and pay his respects to Eddie Guerrero. It's like, wait a minute. Did you just fake a a terrorist attack on the CEO of your company? Yeah. I feel like that's a crime. Do you even know? I feel like you committed a felony. Do you even know who was in the Jersey Triad? No! Canyon, Bam Bam Bigelow, and DDP. The Jersey Triad. Well, I mean, they are all trash, so... I mean, with the long hair and the bald head with tattoos, it makes sense that they came from New Jersey, just like the Giants and the Jets. So I, I had to reference... That's a great football tie-in! Yeah, I had to reference that because the Jets put up no points. <laughs> so if you're a Bills fan, we've been sitting over here chortling. If you haven't already, I'm not going to walk you through it. Check out our full game recap and reaction show from earlier this week, because it was a lot of fun. Chris, I feel like looking over the rest of the division, I'm going to make a lot of money betting these AFC East spreads this week. I successfully picked Chargers Chiefs. They were oh, getting did. six and a half. How do you not take that? I'm like, I think they, I because, I, again, I hate watch things that I don't like. I hate watch the Ravens. I hate watch the Chiefs. I don't watch the Patriots anymore. I don't care about them. That's how I know I've turned a corner as a fan. But... In watching the Chiefs thus far this year, I go, you know what? That team, nah, ain't it? And Herbert, he's been itching. And that offense looks mistake-prone. Rookie offensive lineman, you're lacking weapons, your defense is awful. <sighs> Chris, six and a half points to a team led by Justin Herbert? I'll take that. That'd be yeah. like if someone made the day. That's like if next weekend we found out that the Buffalo Bills were seven-point underdogs to to the Chiefs, would you or would you not roll some cash? I think I might. I might have to. Yeah, I might have you'd to have to wet your beak. You'd have to. Now, looking at the division, do you remember week one when the Bills were at the bottom? Yeah. The, everyone else's fan base was puffing their chest out. They were all full of, uh, you know, I call it bravado over who was and wasn't a quote-unquote contender in the division this year. And I think a lot of it got fueled by some nonsense from the knee-jerk national media. Idiots like Bart Scott calling us frauds on NFL. What's ESPN's show? Why do they... The fact that that guy's on TV tells you everything you need to know about ESPN's, like, daytime NFL coverage. I think Bart Scott is with WFAN. I don't know. I think I see him. He used to be on ESPN Radio. I know that. He had a show for two hours. And yeah. then they canceled 
ESPN radio in the Buffalo market. So now we just get some ridiculous betting show. And I can't I'm I'm literally stuck with WGR. That's it. That's all I have. You can just listen or to your, wind. Or you can just listen to yourself. No, there's just mornings I listen to wind. That happens. <laughs> there's some days I, I, I just listen you, to wind. I don't know how you should just you should just be as arrogant as you are and just listen to yourself. <laughs> That's a great point I made. <laughs> So him calling us frauds, Nick Wright constantly trying to predict our downfall. Well, I'll tell you what. One of our teams is fresh off another dominant performance, is the first team in the division to put put together a win streak, and is a resounding 78-21 and over its last two games. There are all sorts of glaring disparities between our teams, if you were to bother to look at them. Buffalo is ninth in points per play. No one else in the division is ranked higher than 27th. That stat right there, what does that tell you, Chris? I don't know. I was DMing somebody. I didn't hear it. It better have been a lady. If it wasn't, I'm very disappointed in you. Well, you know, it was... Buffalo, ninth in points per play. No one else in the division ranked higher than 27th. Frauds? No. Who's a fraud? What? Uh, Buffalo tied with Tennessee for sixth in rushing touchdowns per game. Miami's close at eighth. But New England, the team that we all knew was going to have to live and die by the run and claimed to be built to win the division. And they're going to over... Sorry, Buffalo, but they just got a competent quarterback. Now they spent all this money in free agency and they drafted... This run-first, defense-heavy philosophy, they're tied for 17th in rushing touchdowns per game in the NFL. Buffalo is ranked 5th in the NFL in points allowed per play. New England is 7th, and everybody else is below middle of the league. Our defense might be pretty good, Chris. It might be. And maybe our defense is helped out by an offense that makes teams one-dimensional. Yeah, I'm. I won't put our uh, all my chips in our how good our defense is until probably after we play the Chiefs. Is it interesting to you that the team that some of the media said preseason was constructed well and should dethrone Buffalo in the Patriots is struggling to execute what everyone thought they fixed? Everyone said, well, they brought in two stud tight ends. They brought in, they brought back Trent Brown. They did this, they did that. Their offensive line, their running back stable. Does it shock you that they're so painfully mediocre? Or was this something you kind of expected? Well, I mean, they had all those signings. So you got to have time to time to gel. Yeah. And we didn't, Mac Jones was not named the quarterback until late in the preseason. So, you know, you don't know how how many reps he was getting, you know, as the number one throughout training camp. I, sure. Plus, if you look at Belichick's history previously throughout the month of September, he uses September as technically like an extension of the preseason to get things going. And then by November, at least when they had Brady, they that's when they began to roll. I'd buy that for a dollar. But you just touched on this. And it might be what is the biggest disparity between our teams in this division. And it's what we have under center in Josh Allen. All the hand-wringing that got done around our fan base, uh, what, in that first week? After we lost to the uh, – we, we lost and then everybody watched the way we played against Miami and everyone goes, oh, no, I don't know. 
Allen leads the AFC East in almost every positive quarterback statistic, and it's not close. He's got 130 more passing yards than Mac Jones. He leads the AFC East with seven touchdown passes, while nobody else has more than two. Buffalo is the only team in the division with just one interception on the season thus far. He has over 200 more completed air yards than any other quarterback in the division. Chris, isn't that what has always separated the teams in the AFC East? Yeah, you're going to have a great quarterback, great play calling. Outside of the 2008 Wildcat Dolphins, no team was able to dethrone the squad led by the de facto best quarterback in the AFC East in Tom Brady. I mean, that, that goes back to the early 2000s. That's insane. Yeah. So now we have the best quarterback in the division, and it's not, it's not even debatable. <laughs> it's, it's bearing out already that these kids can't hold his jock. And that's great. Sure, they have a bright future. Tua, maybe he rebounds from the nightmare start to the season he's had. Maybe Zach, maybe Zach Wilson gets saved, like we talked about with Kyle, and they find uh, with uh, Jesus with uh, Scott, and they get a better offensive coordinator who better understands how to protect a rookie quarterback and develop him. Maybe the Patriots, it's just it's just growing pains, and it's that he'll learn how to use those star tight ends they signed. Chris, what what are they paying? Twelve million dollars a year for each of them? Something like that. Astronomical your number. Your, your return on investment is embarrassing right now. Maybe someday he learns how to harness that. Yeah, too but bad. That day's, but that day's not today. No, too bad they can't bring back Aaron Hernandez from the dead. I feel like he'd still owe a lot of people a lot of money. I don't. If they did, and he started, he suited up for the Patriots. I still think he'd owe like three or four, or five seasons worth of game checks. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> people are going to get mad at us for that, Chris. Remember, we talked about offending people. I don't care. No, that's all I can control is whether or not I care. Um, ultimately, when I look at this. It's being laid pretty bare that despite what these clickbaity mouthpieces from the sports media industry would have, would have liked you all to believe. There isn't a single team in this division that can hold a candle to the quarterback running what is clearly the most competently constructed and well-coached roster in the AFC East. And that's the Buffalo Bills. Now, hopefully this goes a long way towards illustrating to the knee-jerk, easy-to-rattle portion of our fan base that somehow, Chris... Some of these people who are so quickly to turn negative on things, like when I was laughing after we lost to the Steelers and people were like, I expected you to be angrier. Yeah, but I'm not because I realized that for the first time in my adult life, I'm watching a, t- a Bills team that's good. That's, that's not just good, maybe great. Well, that, that's hard for me to wrap my head around considering you didn't think that we were going to beat the Dolphins until 32 seconds left in the game. I know, right? And yet here I am. So, for people who feel that way, hopefully all of this goes a long way towards showing you that just because some blowhard in a suit says something about your football team or showers your division rivals with praise for all these perceived improvements they've made, it doesn't mean a lick of difference until you put it on the football field and make it work for you. Right now, both sides of the ball are working for the Buffalo Bills. Nobody else in the division can say that. No one. And it doesn't look like it's going to look or sound like it's going to get any better anytime soon. (laughs) 
You are who and what your record and the numbers say you are. And right now, the Buffalo Bills are the class of the AFC East. And I will drink to that. So with that said, next week's spread, the Bills are a 17-point home favorite. Chris, you bet college sports every weekend. This is a friggin' NCAA spread. Not an NFL one, right? 100%. Yards per pass on Twitter found out that the Bills, well, he dug up the numbers. The Bills have only ever been favored by more than their current 17-point spread twice in franchise history. Or actually, no, uh, around in that same ballpark. And also, that back in 1992, the Bills managed to lose back-to-back games despite being favored by 17-and-a-half and 16-and-a-half to the Colts and the Jets. Isn't is it weird? Like, that's a weird, random thing to think about, right? Like, in a year where your team went to the Super Bowl, you were 17 points and 16 points favored over your opponent, and you lost both those games. That's insane. And you still went to the Super Bowl. Yeah. This is why gambling sucks. This is why all of this stinks. And yet, at the same time, it's why I look at it and I go, it's happened once in history. I don't... Do you think it's ever happened to another franchise, or are we just cursed as Bills fans? Well, careful with throwing around around that word "cursed." I mean, look what happened to the Lions this weekend? That's that's cur- that's cursed. That's NFL officiating sucking ass, is what that is. They they missed the most egregious delay of game of all time. I'll I'll die on that hill. The, the Ravens should have lost that football game. Kudos to Justin Tucker. He's a cool dude. He sings opera. Great. Wonderful. Good for you. But that's essentially the officials going, you know what? We need the Ravens to win this game. <laughs> that, that's what that looks like. Now, does knowing that the Bills previously in their history lost a 17.5 point game where they were favored, does it change the way you see this one? I've, I'm going to bet on this game. I wouldn't. I would just stay away from it. It reminds me too much of uh, we had a we did a watch party at Mike and Melissa's. Yep. And against the uh, Vikings, and we beat them. And I think we were. I think the Vikings were favored by seventeen, and we ended up you beating them. You took the Vikings. Yeah. You had to you had to chug a sixteen ounce Seagram that day. I think I had to chug it after the opening drive because we went yes. down and scored. Yeah, no, you no, were just I, no, you were you were like, oh, I don't think that I don't think that we'll score more than ten points, and it took two drives. Yeah, it was insane. I'm just, and I and I think the I think the Texans are worse than we were that year in eighteen. Yeah, I would just stay away from this game. <laughs> I love that you're the king of bad beats, and even you are saying I'm not touching that. Yeah, I would not. Touch, <laughs> I'm not touching this game. Folks, the week three AFC East outlook. Usually, I go team by team, but here's what I'll say: two of them are f- are f- are more than six point underdogs. That's all you need to know about what's going on here in this week. And Miami can't get two points. They can't even get two points at home against a team whose quarterback sprained both of his ankles, and they don't have a single win. That tells you what everybody thinks about the Dolphins. And for Buffalo, well, I mean, I, I mean, Chris, you lose this one. I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to. I'll tell you what, the Buffalo Bills lose this one. I'll make a bet with you. How about this? How about this? If the Bills lose to the Texans, then next week 
You can only drink Seagram's. I'll take that bet. <laughs> uh, see, I want to make another bet with you, but there's no fair way to make it because the Texans are that bad. I mean, if you don't believe me, go back and listen to our preview show this week. But I was going to say, if the Texans win by more than two scores, you shave off one of your eyebrows and just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> no. I take no no part in any bet that r- involves me altering my appearance because it's all I have. <laughs> oh, damn it. All right, well, you know what? Seagram's for the rest of the week. I'll take that. If we lose, I'll do it. We'll shake on that. And with that in mind, guys, we got to get the hell out of here. Thank you for showing up tonight. Thank you to all of our guests, as always. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger, and this is your AFC East Roundup. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com